and welcome to another episode of How Not To Make A Game. I'm your host Stuart Neil and I'm joined tonight again by Manuela Malasagna from Team Dogbet. Hi Manuela. Hi Stuart, great to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So since our last interview a year and a half ago now, um, you have put Red Star Azimuth on hold and released a completely different game. What was the reasoning behind putting Red Star Azimuth on hold? Uh, well, <laughs> it's interesting because it's, it's something that's uh, very specific to a time and place. Um, and uh, also, I'm uh, very uh, happy and honored to be invited back here, so thanks so much for that. So, as we know, or perhaps if, if people are listening to this years from now, I need to provide some historic con- uh, context. Uh, you know, the, uh, the pandemic's raging. Mm-hmm. And um, last year, 2020, uh, in April, I uh, contracted the uh, infamous coronavirus the Roni, the round boy. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, I had a uh, mild case, which means I was uh, terribly deathly ill, but I didn't need to be hospitalized. Mm-hmm. People still don't know too much about uh, this nasty thing. But um, a few months later, I became tremendously unwell again uh, with heart failure. And uh, they've uh, subsequently found that that's not uncommon. And actually something like one in eight people who survive the virus go on to die later of like heart failure or heart attacks or something. Mm-hmm. I was almost one of those. Um, so that was uh, July of last year. I became, uh, well, like I, I had a heart attack and I almost died. Ooh. So because I live in a barbaric nation, <laughs> this was very expensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. um, and so it kind of uh, chewed through my savings, which I was living on in order to create Red Star. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a confluence of things. I had put it on hold to work on the cherry orchard, but I didn't resume working on it because I had to go get a job because I ran out of money. Mm-hmm. But backtracking onto the cherry orchard, it's still related to this pandemic stuff. Sorry, this is out of order, but I had recently gotten sick, but I'd recovered. And I was, I think everybody was just really depressed and unhappy at that time. This was um, late April early May of last year. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to uh, my friend, Matthew Curtis, call Matt. He's credited, always credited as Matthew Curtis because he's an actor. And uh, I think he could tell that I was not happy. I don't think he was happy either. And we were just kind of like talking about things that we wanted to do or things we wish that we could do. And I had uh, expressed a desire to direct the cherry orchard. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, well, why don't you do that? And I said, well, of course I can't do that because I can't direct a play during a pandemic. And also, even if there was a pandemic, well, like what theater company is going to have me produce this play where they don't know me? You see, you can make it a video game. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I can't afford to cast the whole thing. And he said, well, you could just, you know, put in a casting call for what you can afford and see who tries out. Mm-hmm. So I did. And... uh a lot of people uh, tried out, I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself on things, but because um, the Cherry Orchard is a very, um, it's not super well known among the general populace, but it's very prestigious among those who've studied drama. Mm-hmm. And it's very prestigious to have a role in it on your resume. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people jumped at the chance to uh, be a part of the production, even though um, I was paying like middling indie rates. Uh, because it would be uh, very good for them to have that in their uh, history, in their resume. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've gotten ahead of your question. I don't know if I'm going in the right direction. <laughs> no, that's okay. Going back um, specifically to Red Star Azimuth, 
With it currently being on hold, does this mean now that it is indefinitely on hold or is this a case of scrapping it completely? Uh, right now, uh, I have a full-time contract and then I've got a few um, smaller contracts. So I've got some income so I can live and not get thrown out on the streets. Mm-hmm. But I expect my biggest contract to end in the fall. Mm-hmm. So my plan is after that to pivot back to Red Star. Now, with regards to the um, future of Red Star, I think it was good to step back uh, and have a look at the project because that gave me the the distance to evaluate. I was really trying to make two different games at once because mm-hmm. there's this um, sort of uh, technical Zachtronics hacking puzzle game in there and then there's sort of a uh, an adventure game in there. So my plan is to actually split it into two different games and release it as two different games. Okay. Uh, one will be called Red Star Azimuth, and that will be the hacking game because the name mm-hmm. Red Star Azimuth is actually a, a, a veiled reference to uh, cryptography. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one I will name something else. I haven't decided yet. But the good news is the, the hacking game is almost complete. Oh, okay. It's it's a rather mature game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not mature as in content, but uh, in, in terms of being along in development. So that's the plan. Uh, and I understand it's a bit, well, I, I was kind of disappointed to realize, oh, no, this is going to be put off for, for quite a while. But fortunately, uh, it's not it's not totally like, oh, no, I have to, to go back to work and shelve my dreams because I'm actually very excited about uh, the contracts I've been working on. The biggest I can I can say what the biggest one is. Uh, and It's uh, Darkest Dungeon 2. Oh, OK. I'm 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 not crying over it. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> been a fun project to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is sort of what a curious thing that. This basically happened because, you know, my country has no real safety net with regards mm. to healthcare. Uh, yeah. Because if I hadn't, uh, you know, been out tens of thousands of dollars because I got very ill, then I would still be working. I, I would have picked up Red Star after uh, the Cherry Orchard. Moving them back to the Cherry Orchard, you'd said that you had wanted to direct the Cherry Orchard um, as a project. Do you have um, sort of an affinity for it or is it something that you had previously studied? Well, um, so long before I was ever a game developer, before I ever knew how to program, it wasn't my major, but I, I studied uh, theater as much as I could during college. Uh, mm. My university at the time uh, did not offer a minor, but at any other institution I would have uh, gotten a minor in it because mm. I had quite a number of hours in that uh, credit hours in the uh, American university system. And so studied uh, all, all kinds of aspects of, of drama, you know, acting and set and uh, directing. And uh, I was mentored in script writing. And uh, that's been very important to me for game development. Um, and so when you study theater, you know, there's sort of like the canon. I think, you know, if you study any form of literature, there's the, the canon of, of that form of literature. Um, mm. And I think uh, even even lay people know like you know the the canon of of drama theater includes like the works of William Shakespeare but particularly when looking at 20th century drama uh, the works of Anton Chekhov are very highly regarded mm-hmm. and many people consider the Cherry Orchard to be his finest work mm-hmm. some people think it's like the Seagull or whatever but you know it's it's up there it's up there <laughs> <laughs> and the Cherry Orchard is kind of considered um, difficult to produce well. Because it, there's tension at the heart of the premise of the story. And it's that Chekhov, when he wrote it, he called it a comedy. Uh, in fact, the subtitle of the play is A Comedy in Four Acts. Mm-hmm. 
And it wasn't people like, oh, well, Russians are weird. Russians don't like they don't feel like we do. No, no. Like his contemporaries, other Russians at the time, like looked at the script and they were like, uh, you know, bro, are you OK? <laughs> this doesn't look like a comedy to me. And it's that there are lots of comic moments, but the uh, story kind of also has a lot of heavy stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And so these things they have to be reconciled because it's very easy for them to feel uncomfortable together. And so anyone who, well, and then the other thing about all of Chekhov's plays, and I think one of the reasons why they're highly regarded is that characters don't say why they do anything and they don't explain their feelings. Mm-hmm. So the reason why anybody does anything or like the, the way a character feels is really up to the director. And so for that reason, like it's sort of the feather for a director to put in their cap is to have directed the cherry orchard, uh, just as it is for an actor to have uh, portrayed the major characters in it. Um, because there's this uh, tension that has to be resolved on the part of the people interpreting it for mm. it to be good. So I think uh, <laughs> that's a roundabout way of saying it was my ego that drove me to want to do it. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to uh, say that I had accomplished one of the more prestigious and difficult things of theater. And I think it's fun to... Um, Especially with video games, which is a medium which is considered, I guess, uh, still considered a bit frivolous. Mm. To say, I'm, I'm going to do something that's considered very prestigious and artistic in a medium that is considered very frivolous. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a meta joke, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> From a creative standpoint, how did you go about adapting it? And I know that um, it's not necessarily the full script. So how did you work through that and decide which pieces of the script to excise? I had, in fact, started adapting the script in October of 2019. Mm-hmm. Not because I ever thought that I would produce it, uh, but it was um, ever, ever since college, you know, when I'd been studying drama, I thought like, one day, one day I'd like to direct The Cherry Orchard. I'd like to do The Cherry Orchard. And so I think I was like, oh, I'll just like pick at this in my spare time, even though it won't go anywhere, I won't do anything. Um, But even at the time, because I've been directing voiceover since 2015, I was thinking, well, even though I'm never going to do this, let's pretend I'm going to do this. This has to be affordable. And this is a cast of uh, like 17 characters, 14 of which are recurring characters. There are a few one-offs, like a hobo. Mm -hmm. fine. (laughs) So like, okay, so I'm going to pare this down to something I could conceivably afford. So we're going to reduce this to four characters, I decided. Um, We're going to reduce this to the four most important characters. So that was how that decision was made, was money. <laughs> and from there, it was a challenge. And I think that's kind of what kept the interest of how, how can I make this play, which was written for 14 recurring speaking characters to work with four. Mm. Um, and that required cutting out various subplots. And that in itself required kind of some laser focus on the theme I wanted to communicate. So the um, play has sort of its major themes and then the subplots have sort of other themes that support the major theme. So it's like, well, if I'm uh, taking out these subplots, I have to make sure I'm laser targeted on the actual message I'm trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the good news is because the play is written well, because it's a well-written script, the the theme is very strong throughout. So it it was, um, I guess, difficult, but not terribly so to consolidate it. Um, And while working on it, it kind of helped me appreciate, like, I think when when you are kind of, um, how would I put this? There's some satisfaction in knowing you can tell like something that's really good from something that's merely good Mm -hmm. 
so working in the script being like, wow, yeah, Chekhov really is good. I wonder if people know that. Like, people should get on this. This guy's pretty good at writing. Because it was such a strong script that um, helped the process along. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated it approaching it again because I had not really seriously looked at it since college. Um, from the point of view of someone producing a game, the pacing is very good. The pacing is very well suited to games. And I realized it's almost better suited to an adaption to a game than a film script because... In some ways, video games and stage have similar limitations. Mm -hmm. So things like arranging the pacing of the advancement of the plot around the necessity to, you know, need to sometimes drop the lights and have the crew come on and rearrange the yeah. set. That dovetails quite nicely with in a game, you know, you need to uh, darken the screen and put up a loading screen while you, you know, load other objects. So it uh, ended up being a good match. The game also has Russian subtitles. Was that a lot of work to do? Um, I would say yes and no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, because uh, the subtitles, in fact, come from the original text of the play. Mm -hmm. So it didn't have to hire anybody to translate them. But yes, because since my adaptation is abridged, the original text of the play still needed to be um, edited and arranged to match the uh, script that I had come up with. And to assist me in this, I uh, hired a another developer named Maria Mishrenko to edit the subtitles, proofread them, and make sure they were uh, arranged properly. Mm -hmm. She is a game developer, but she majored in Russian literature. Um, so it's sort of a, a great match. I kind of put a, a call on Twitter like, uh, you know, can can you speak Russian? Do you understand Russian? Can you help me with this? I'll pay you. So I had a few people drop into my uh, DMs, but I went with her because, I mean, a literal Russian lit major? I mean, mm -hmm. you can't say no to that. You have to go with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was fun to work with her because uh, in, in the United States, I think probably in the Anglophone world, you will only have studied this play if you've studied drama as well. Mm -hmm. However, uh, if someone has grown up in sort of the, the Russophone world or whatever you would want to call it, the Russian-speaking world, um, like she's from Ukraine. No, she's from Kazakhstan, but she's of Ukrainian descent. Uh -huh. But um, she she had studied this in high school. Mm -hmm. so she's very familiar with this from that as well. And she was telling me that she had always hated it, you know, the way that like kids hate stories that they're forced to read yeah. in school. But I was flattered when she said that she, she decided she liked it after seeing my version. <laughs> <laughs> On the Steam page and um, itch, you just yourself describe it as a 3D kinetic novel. Um, and it's obviously tagged in with sort of other visual novels. While it kind of auto-plays, does that mean that it has kind of thrown a lot of visual novel fans um, because it's not necessarily what they expect? What I found is that uh, visual novel fans understand what it is immediately. Okay. And uh, all the visual novel fans that have uh, had exposure to it seem to be very excited about it, seem to like it. Mm -hmm. Where it's really thrown people for a loop is non-visual novel fans. And it's in a way a, a victim of its own um, high quality graphics, if I do say <laughs> so myself. I Well, I actually only learned the term kinetic novel when I was uh, chatting with uh, Ash, who is a visual novel game developer who is a friend of mine and also uh, is an actress I cast in this production. Mm -hmm. But before I even cast it, I was I was asking her, like, you know, I know you know more a lot more about visual novels than I do. Like, is, is a visual novel without choices a thing? Is that like something that I'm allowed to do? And she's like, oh, yeah, it's like a whole subgenre. There are lots of people who like it. So I'm like, okay, cool. I can do this. I can do this. 
Um, and kinetic novels, the uh, term for a visual novel without uh, branching dialogue paths. Mm. Which, uh, it comes from, there was a uh, Japanese game studio called Kinetic, I believe. Mm. And they became known for this type of visual novel. And then that became like a uh, genericized name. <laughs> like we talk about, I don't know, Xerox or Kleenex or something. Yeah. So what I was finding was visual novel fans thought it was great. They knew they understood what a kinetic novel was, so they weren't confused by the lack of branching paths. Um, but people saw the graphics who weren't visual novel fans and mm. were interested in it. And then they didn't understand why there weren't choices. Like I, it's, I'm quite upfront on the uh, retail storefront pages. Like, you know, this is a linear mm-hmm. thing, no choices. And it's not that they were confused like they didn't know what to do they were confused why it existed at all oh, okay almost in a way offended on an existential level <laughs> such a thing might exist and that kind of got me scratching my head because i i perhaps it's because i'm old and i was born in the late 80s but i grew up in the 90s not only playing like i guess what you would consider a conventional game which has like an objective and mm. you do things you interact with it to achieve the objective but um you know multimedia cds yeah where <laughs> uh you know you you load up your cd and your cd-rom drive and uh you have a thing it's got you know videos and pictures and you click around in it and mm. look at those things and that's what it is so i i don't i to to me i'm not confused by the idea of software that exists for entertainment which is not super interactive but mm. uh a lot of people kind of were, were baffled that such a thing could be made <laughs> From my standpoint, I'm playing it, um, I got it immediately, and actually it serves the purpose of letting me experience the Cherry Orchard as a play, because chances are I would never have that otherwise. I don't think there's been many, or at least not very well-known versions of the Cherry Orchard, and certainly nothing recent that I'm aware of. And the chances of seeing this in a theatre, particularly at the minute, um, are very slim. Hmm. Um, especially coming from Northern Ireland, we're a very small um, sort of theatre-based um, country and things like that. So this was quite a revelation for me um, to sit down and actually experience it. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, uh, well, it's it's been wonderful. And that was one of my goals was to... Um kind of expose people to this play who would not have known of it or been interested in it otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that makes me happy to hear. Yeah. And also the the real-time rendering of the characters um, are both stunning, but also I think it adds that extra level of sort of a little bit of realism or at least engagement with the characters as a play, whereas if it was more of a traditional visual novel with sort of single frame character uh, drawings and things, it wouldn't work as well. Uh, the fact that it's fully voice acted as well helps it um, an awful lot, so it does. You'd mentioned about the voice acting. It was a casting call that you put out for that? Yes, and in fact, you know, this this project was a, a passion project and I knew it wouldn't uh, turn a profit. <laughs> and so the voice acting was almost the point in that I wanted to direct The Cherry Orchard so I needed to create a situation in which I could direct the cherry orchard. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I uh, created a casting call. So it was a, it was a closed casting call uh, sent to my uh, private casting list, but uh, there are a few hundred names on that list. Mm-hmm. And I uh, actually I contacted uh, my close friend uh, Michael Azikis, voiceover talent. He's a uh, another voice actor and a good friend of mine. 
and I asked him to help me cast this. So we got the auditions and uh, I was kind of pessimistic about it because um, I was offering roughly $2 a line, which is like, it's not shameful for indie developers to offer that much, but it's like, it's it's not super great either. Mm, yeah. So I was like, no, nobody's going to want to audition. But I, I started getting auditions in like minutes after I sent that email. So uh, we followed our, our typical procedure. I've cast with Michael uh, two times before for Slam Fighter 2 and Red Star. Um, randomize the submissions, assign everybody a number, and then we listen to everything and write down our notes for each number and come to our uh, decision. And then once we've picked, we, you know, uh, reassociate the numbers with the uh, files and figure out who it was. Yeah. Oh. Although, you know, sometimes you recognize somebody's voice, so that can't be avoided, yeah. but I try, to, try not to be biased. <laughs> and so that was how we arrived at the cast. Actually, the most difficult part of casting was uh, casting the part of Lubov, who's the protagonist. Mm-hmm. She's the uh, older woman who owns the cherry orchard mentioned in the title of the play. Um, that was difficult because usually if someone, so I knew I would have to, uh, I would have to cast an actual older woman mm-hmm. because I knew that I, I, you can like, people can play old, but you can kind of hear that it's actually a young person playing old, particularly if it's something like this production where I was going for a high degree of, uh, verisimilitude in the performances, or mm-hmm. authenticity to the moment, as uh, Stanislavski puts it. With older voice actresses, they tend to be very, uh, one, very established in their careers, and so they demand high uh, pay. Mm, (laughs) But two, if someone is very established in their voiceover career, they are more likely to be uh, represented by an agency or in a union, um, and so not able to take jobs from random uh, rabble like myself. (laughs) This is, you know, so it's, it's much easier to cast younger people than older people for that reason. Mm-hmm. And then also because younger people are on, uh, you know, social media more. So I'm more likely to have heard of them. So they're more likely to be in my casting list. Mm-hmm. So new, you know, if, if I'm going to get an older woman, it has to be an older woman who's non-union. So it means like either not been in the biz for decades or will secretly take non-union work under the table or like decline to join a union or it's not good enough for you. <laughs> yeah, this is sort of complicated things. Uh, but I got this great tip from a mutual on Twitter, also a voice actress and casting director, that uh, I needed to expand my search past Twitter and casting websites and go onto Facebook <laughs> okay. and find um, uh, casting groups in Facebook because that's where all the old people are. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't use Facebook. I log in like a few times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, what? You can do that? What? Um, and I'm still reeling because when I was in college, Facebook was the cool new thing for mm-hmm. college kids. And, uh, you know, now it's now it's for older people. Um, but indeed, uh, yeah, I, I got to quite a number of auditions by um, posting about it uh, on Facebook. That's where I found the older women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I had noticed just whenever I was playing through, there are a small handful of scenes that do play out in the style of a more traditional visual novel. I'm just wondering what the thought process behind those bits were. So I had um, kind of two motives for that. One is I um, so I started development on the Cherry Orchard in late May. Mm-hmm. So like May 20-something or so. And uh, yeah, it was like, okay, I'm going to you know put... Uh, 
Red Star on hold for a bit and work on this and get back into it. It was in June that my health started to decline. And in July, I was uh, kind of touch and go for a bit there. <laughs> I even uh, wrote up, uh, you know, documents on how my uh, state is to be uh, disposed of yeah. uh, following my demise. Mm. That's that's how sure I was that I was done for. And so I realized that I was not probably not going to be able to um, like throw myself into this project the way that I thought that I was going to be able to because I was going to be limited by like sometimes being bedridden. (laughs) So it's like, okay, so I'm not going to be able to fully animate this whole thing. So I will need to fall back on these visual novel styled segments sometimes. Uh, But I wanted to find a way where that could be a plus that could be an asset to the story rather than sort of a consolation prize. And um, I think, I think I came up with a good solution because, and this is sort of my style anyway, I kind of do this in pretty much any story I tell. I decided to kind of, this story could sort of comment on itself, which I I felt was merited because it is so, I guess among theater nerds, so famous Mm. um, and so prestigious, but the story could comment on itself and add something and not just be sort of a sly wink. So I decided I would use this sort of as a, a visual comment on the artifice of these um, sort of delusions the characters are living in and use it to sort of heighten artifice in attitudes or words of these characters. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, in some cases, brought it out to um, either for to, to exaggerate things for comic effect or to kind of stiffen things for dramatic effect. And um, <laughs> and then sometimes because I ran out of time and I couldn't uh, animate that scene fully. But I think that's in the minority. And I have been trying to go back and fully animate the scenes where I didn't, for artistic reasons, choose to put it in that visual novel style. Mm-hmm. But there are some scenes where I will never convert them to full animation because they are meant to be in that stiff visual novel style. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I hoped that this uh, production could not just be a consolation prize for not being able to go to the theater on account of the pandemic, but to be an experience you can only have via a video game. Yeah. As much as like you can, I mean, you could have stiff, non-moving characters in a film, but it would be out of place in the medium of film, mm-hmm. whereas it's sort of expected normal in the medium of video games. And so it uh, doesn't ruin your suspension of disbelief in the same way it would. Yeah. The game has a lot of accessibility options, um, including text size, text backgrounds, and flat graphic colors, etc. How important is it that games as entertainment focus on these things to gain a wider audience and acceptance as art, I suppose? And do you think all developers from AAA to, you know, um, like yourself, sort of single developers, be making more of an effort in that area? Well, um... It's an interesting uh, sort of framing of the question because I think the, hmm, so for me, I think the motive for uh, including lots of accessibility options is in part kind of a personal. Um, and I didn't do it necessarily with a focus on expanding the audience in that way, although that is important. Mm-hmm. So I myself have uh, limited use of my right arm, and it causes me pain to uh, manipulate things with my uh, 
with the fingers on my right hand mm-hmm. for uh, any extended period of time, which is unfortunate because I'm right-handed. But one of the most important accessibility features for me and for many people with uh, limited uh, mobility in their arms is remappable controls. Mm-hmm. And I always notice that when I'm playing a game where like I cannot proceed because I can't remap the controls. Uh, so that's something that's always at the forefront of my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, perhaps perhaps uh, gives me even more empathy. Or who knows, maybe if my arm wasn't screwed up, I would still have this empathy. I don't know. Maybe I'm a good person. I don't know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it makes me think, you know, there, there are other people who, you know, they they don't have limited mobility in their limbs, but they have some other thing where mm-hmm. it's like this this thing that's not terribly difficult for a developer to do wasn't implemented. And now they can't play this game. And it's so frustrating. So trying to implement all the accessibility features that I could that wouldn't be prohibitively uh, expensive in terms of time or money to do. Mm-hmm. And also, one of my biggest regrets in life, I suppose, is... Um, so I was uh, internet friends as mutuals with a, uh, a uh, gamer on Twitter, and uh, her name was Susan, and she was deaf. And we would talk about things. I'd ask her for advice on uh, accessibility and so on. And uh, I was joking with her, you know, I I think it's a shame that, uh, like, my one game on Steam you probably couldn't enjoy because it's a rhythm game Mm. and you're deaf. And she said, no, no, actually, I love rhythm games because I, like, you know, turn up the bass on uh, (laughs) the speakers and I can feel the vibrations and I play it by the vibrations. I was like, what? Wow. So I gave her a key for that game. uh, But then... Uh, unfortunately, uh, like a week or two after that, she passed away and, uh, it was very devastating. Um, Mm -hmm. but I found out after that, I guess I was, um, was looking at, I think I was looking at the replies on her Twitter timeline Mm -hmm. because you you don't see those in the, in the main part. And someone had asked her what her favorite game she'd played recently was. And she said, Slam Fighter 2. And so I was like, ah, (laughs) but so Slam Fighter 2 has voice acting, but I hadn't implemented subtitles. Mm-hmm. So she was able to play it, to play the game game because she could feel the vibrations from the electronic music, mm-hmm. but she couldn't like, you know, enjoy the banter of the characters. And so it's like, I, I wish I had included that so that she could have experienced that before she passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not going to let that be a regret for any game I make ever again. Mm-hmm. Since launch, you have um, made quite a few substantial updates uh, to the game, including cast commentary. And in the most recent update, um, there's been an additional scene put in as well, um, as well as other optimizations, tweaks and things. Do you view the extra content as a selling point for potential buyers um, when you're working on them? Or are these things that you always wanted to put in, but just never got around to for launch? I think it's a, a mix, a mix of things. Um, well, so I knew that this would never be a. Um, I knew I would never break even on this project because it's too niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's it's never been, I suppose, a profit motive. Uh, but I suppose there's a few categories of uh, updates, subsequent updates. Some of those are just fixes or improvements. Um, there are like a few tiny bugs, sort of edge casey things that made it into the 1.0 release and I wanted to make sure that those were fixed. Mm-hmm. With regards to new animation, part of it is um, I, I have uh, ADHD mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that that can be a struggle. It can be an asset, but it's mostly a struggle. And um, I, it is common for people with ADHD. I get uh, 
hyper-focus. I hyper-focus on things generally for months at a time. And if it can be on something I'm working on, it's great because it makes me uh, very, very focused on uh, my work. Mm. And so that was the case with the cherry orchard. And uh, one thing about people with ADHD is it's very hard for them to turn on a dime. It's very hard to shift that focus, even if you went very badly too. So for the few weeks after I had released the game, I had a very hard time pivoting my focus to anything else. So I was still tinkering with it and uh, animating scenes and stuff because that was, uh, you know, I would finish my work for the day on contracts and uh, the only thing I'd want to do is like keep tweaking <laughs> the cherry orchard. So that's kind of where a lot of that came from. And then I think also to stave off, you know, this is a very common thing to have a post-release depression. Regardless of whether you have ADHD or not, you know, you ship a project, the project's done and you've kind of like geared your whole mind around finishing this thing. So then it's out and it's like, okay, is that it? So we're done? We're done? <laughs> uh, so that's sort of a loss of purpose in life until you find a new purpose. It's almost like breaking up. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that lightly. I've broken it before um, a few times. It is. I think it's it's not as devastating, but it's a similar feeling of, you know, my whole life centered around like having this person at home or whatever. And now they're not. And what am I? <laughs> so... Um, that kind of was that, but it did, you know, the new scene you mentioned, that was fun. That ended up being another mini project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it came out of sort of the um, the cheap manner in which I produced the Cherry Orchard. <laughs> <laughs> so the Cherry Orchard uh, is almost entirely made out of assets, which I already had for Red Star. Mm-hmm. And so the characters, the character models, I made mostly by modifying the existing character models from Red Star. I made some original stuff myself, but the vast majority of everything is uh, from Red Star. Mm. What was funny is the characters of Trofimov and Varya in The Cherry Orchard, both of their faces are derived from the face of a character named Ioana in Red Star. Mm. Uh and so the male character's face is actually sort of like a stretched out version of this female character's face. Uh, and the uh, benefit of that was I was able to reuse a lot of existing uh, face animation. Because the thing about characters with different faces is in a lot of cases you cannot share the animation because the actual like shape of their faces, the way their mouths are animated to move, yeah. you know, the way I set it up is not quite the same, so it, it doesn't look quite right. But because these characters like shared a same source face, they could also share animations between them. Uh, but I had uh, decided for the Cherry Orchard, if, if they, I had to make a separate set of face animations for Trofimov and Varya, because otherwise it was too obvious that they had the same face. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so like if one character smiles, the other character smiles, it needs to look different. But because they'd come from the same face, they could trade these sets and it would still be compatible. Mm-hmm. So as a gag, because like my brain was still in like, I want to work on the cherry orchard, so I'll find something stupid to do with it that will satisfy my brain's urgings. Um, I thought it would be funny if I um, uh, retextured the Varya model with Trofimov's textures and retextured the Trofimov model with Varya's textures um, and then had them swap face animations because that would basically be like the gender swap version of the characters mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be terribly difficult to do because of the way the models had been made yeah um and so it's kind of goofing off posting this with no audio on twitter and uh, the actress ash who played varia got kind of uh 
excited about it. So like, I think I think we need to do something with this. I'm like, you know what? You're right. So I did bring, um, I brought her and Will back mm-hmm. in uh, to re-record uh, a scene in the play, but trading characters to be used with these uh, new which tech mold modified models. And that ended up being a lot of fun. So I guess it's not a new scene in as much as like, it's not a new script, but it's new because the animation is new mm. and the voice acting is new. And uh, it was really silly and people had fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the game itself has been out for a couple of months now. And obviously you've said that it hasn't broken even um, as yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how has the sort of games media coverage um been at release date and has it, has anything come of it since or was just nobody really interested in it at all yeah it was a bit unfortunate so uh, prior to release i did sort of this big press tour um say so made a press kit and i gathered my list of uh, outlets and streamers that i wanted to hit up and sent everybody emails and so mm-hmm. on and response was pretty low um, even though I tried to target uh, streamers and outlets that focused on narrative-heavy games. I got uh, probably outside of Steam, oh, maybe five reviews, mm-hmm. and it got played by two streamers, I think. <laughs> uh, I think some of my friends have streamed it subsequently, but of the of the people I contacted for press reasons, yeah, two people played oh, okay. it. And so it was a little, a little disappointing, but I also recognized like this is a, it's an unusual project because it's a visual novel, but it's not got choices. It doesn't look like a visual novel. Mm -hmm. So, but I suppose it was disappointing, but not surprising. But what was nice to see is uh, in virtually all cases, the coverage it did receive was uh, glowing. People like it. <laughs> Everybody plays it, likes it. Yeah. I think the, I think the issues that this project ran into, even going back into uh, bug fixes that I pushed subsequently, and um, the disappointing press response was, I ended up having a hard deadline on when I had to ship this game, because I had to accept full time uh, work, okay. so that I would not be uh, destitute and you know evicted from my apartment or something yeah. in the middle of a deadly global pandemic on account of my uh, staggering medical bills <laughs> from uh, almost dying in the summer. Mm. All these things are connected. Um, so I had to kick the game out of the door, whether it was ready or not, by November 20th, uh, because I was going full time with Red Hook in December. Um, and so I think ideally I would have had more time to um, court the press about it. Mm-hmm. And I know that I could have held off on releasing it and, uh, you know, spent all December looking up press. But knowing who I am and knowing my nature and knowing my hyper focus, I knew that if the game was not yet released, I would still devote like eight plus hours of the day working on it. Yeah. And that along with, you know, working full time was uh, and my already, you know, poor health was just going to be very bad. So I understood that by like not leaving a month for only marketing, it was going to uh, damage the game's chances of turning a profit. But I made that decision not on, I think, uh, profit with regards to the game, but uh, knowing knowing the state of myself and my health. Um, 
but I don't know if that answered that question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that kind of covers it. So obviously, um, with you working on other projects and what have you, um, what's next for Team Dogpit? Um, You had said that the sort of puzzle part of Red Star Azimuth is nearly ready for release. Um, So are you looking at possibly this year or next year um, for that? And what then is sort of the next project that you'll be working on? So (laughs) I'm uh, in this uh, strange uh, position of trying very hard not to get obsessed with any project because I know that if I get very obsessed with a project, it's my hyperfocus, it will consume my thoughts and attention. So I have been very wary about poking at Red Star while working full-time on other contracts. Mm-hmm. But um, my hope, I'm, I'm actually kind of hoping to take on another small project similar to the Cherry Orchard to maybe work on between now and the fall. Okay. Especially since um, one of the things that kept me kind of tweaking animations on uh, the Cherry Orchard is I had kind of... Um, uh, really refined this system of uh, combining keyframe animation with procedural animation uh, for the cherry orchard. And that was something that kind of kept me excited about that project was being able to have a lot of uh, procedural eye and head rotations as a time-saving measure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I could create a project of the scale of the cherry orchard in half the time now because my tools are all in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I'd like to do. Uh, but nothing definitive i think the plan for release on uh red star and as yet unnamed uh, adventure game pulled out of red star um is to return to that after darkest dungeon 2 arrives on early access okay very good well thank you manuela for coming on um it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again um how can people get hold of you if they want to uh, people can get a hold of me uh, via email, Manuela at teamdogpit.com, and they can get a hold of me on Twitter, either via at teamdogpit or at Manuela Shibanya. And um, yeah, everybody can give me a holler. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. It's always it's always fun. Yeah. Uh, great to catch up. Thank you. Uh, yes, if you'd like to get in contact with me or the podcast, um, you can get us on Twitter at how to make a game. It's number two. Uh, I'm at Saintly Stewart, and you can email me on how to make a gamecast at gmail.com as well. Now, I thank you very much for this. Um, it has been a fascinating, actually, um, sort of story behind um, what you've been <laughs> working on and things. Um, and just the way that you have obviously adapted um, to your situation um, and everything going on, as well as everything that is going on, uh, is um, <laughs> quite amazing, so it is. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on, Manuela, and goodbye. All right, later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>